Well, good morning and welcome to River City. Uh, we're glad to have you with us today. As Charlie said, my name is Nathan Jornstead. Um, my wife, uh, Morgan, and I have been leading a community group for about five plus years um, now at this church, and we've been going to this church a few years before that. Um, I currently work downtown at Myriad Mobile, otherwise known as Bushel, building software for the agriculture industry. So our strike team is going to be coming down the aisles, handing out Bibles, so just raise your hand if you'd like to borrow one. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, consider this a gift to you from River City, um, and feel free to take it home with you. As Charlie said, today we're going to be in Psalm 106, and as you're turning there, I'll give you some context for how we have arrived here and how the psalm fits in with the rest of the psalms. In February, uh, Pastor Jake kicked off this series um, of sermons on book four of the psalms. The psalms are broken down into five books, having been gathered together and organized after the Jews returned from exile. Now, book four, which we've been studying, is focused on the people's growth and maturity in faith, exhorting them to return to the Lord. Psalm 106, which we'll be reading here today, is the, the last psalm in book four, ending with a doxology, as all of the closing psalms do with some form of blessed be the Lord or praise the Lord, which in Hebrew is hallelujah, and often stating amen and amen or, or something along those lines. It's as if the, the people who organized the psalms into the five books wanted to make sure that the people were reminded at the end of each book to turn their affections and praise towards God Almighty, remembering his steadfast love, even amidst our trials, our sufferings, and our unfaithfulness. Now, this psalm is often thought to be a psalm of David, although it is not indicated as such in our Bibles. The reason it might be a psalm of David is, well, number one, because the last events described in this psalm are shortly before the time of David. And number two, the language used in the first and last verses of this psalm are pretty much identical to the language used um, by David in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 in celebration of the Ark of the Covenant being placed in the tent that had been prepared to house it. Now, whereas the previous psalm, Psalm 105, which uh, Pastor Jake preached on last week, was a history of God's goodness, this psalm is a history of the people's rebellions and sinfulness, which will become clear as we look at the text. And it is to that text now that I turn your attention, whether in your Bibles or up here on the screen, uh, Psalm 106, and this is the word of the Lord for us today. Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words, and they sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in, in the desert. 
He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When in the camp, uh, when men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they, they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you again this day for your word, that it's readily available to us, Lord, in our language, that we can read it, that we have access to all sorts of different Bibles, Lord, and, and uh, just so readily available, Lord. We just ask today, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word. Um, guard me from error, Father. And uh, help us to see, Lord, that even when we are sinful and sometimes rebellious against you, Father, you are faithful to your promises, Father. Help us to see that here today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, there was once a man who lived in a raggedy shack at the raggedy end of town. He worked hard, put in his time, but never seemed to get ahead. Now, one day, his cousin Frank whom he hadn't seen in years, knocked on his door and asked to speak with him. Frank began to explain to, them, to him how he had made a number of risky investments over the years and had quickly gained a large fortune. At last, Frank arrived at the reason for which he came. 
Justin, I've recently been diagnosed with a terminal illness and have been given six months to live. I have no children and have no close friends, as my wealth has made me a very sad and lonely man. You are my only close relative whom I can trust, so I would like to bequeath my inheritance to you. Why, that's mighty kind of you, Frank. How could, how could I accept such a gift? It is my gift to you, but it does come with one stipulation. There was a clothing item that became very popular back in the 90s, and I, and I just I couldn't stand it. Now, this drapery has become popular once again, and I only ask that you refrain from wearing it for the next six months. The infamous Zubas. <clears throat> Why, of course I can do that. Who in their right mind would want to wear something like that? Then we're in agreement. When they lie me down to rest, if no Zubas have been worn, the inheritance will be yours. And Frank proceeded to leave with the door closing behind him. Now, as it would happen over the next few months, Justin's group of friends became obsessed with Zubas, purchasing multiple pairs apiece and wearing them whenever they weren't at work. Justin just kind of laughed it off, keeping in mind the agreement he had made with his cousin. But one day... Justin's friends invited him to a Zubas party where everyone who was willing to wear their Zubas was invited to attend. Now, Justin had a particular girl that he was interested in, and he heard that she would be attending, so he thought to himself, how will my cousin ever know if I wear them this one time? So he went out and bought a pair and attended the party. The next morning, he received a phone call, and when he picked up the phone, Frank was on the other line. Hi, Justin. I see you have violated our agreement, so I've chosen to give away my inheritance to charity instead. Good day to you. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself right now, what an idiot. How dumb could Justin be? He only had to follow the rule for a few months, and he knew what the consequences would be if he didn't. But that's how, off, how we are often with regard to our sin, Right? We know the consequences of our actions that we're contemplating, and we know what God wants of us and desires of us, but we choose the opposite anyways. Fortunately, even when we are unfaithful and sin against him, God remains faithful to his promises, as we will see here in this psalm. So first we're going to be looking at the middle section of this psalm, verses 6 through 43. Now, this section recounts many of the rebellions and misdeeds of the Israelites from the crossing of the Red Sea to the events recorded in Judges. I have summarized this section as the unfaithfulness of God's people. To help you understand the organization of the psalm, I have made a chart indicating what each section is describing with the biblical passage that we... um, with the biblical passage that the verses are referencing up here on the right. That's the cross-reference column. We will be briefly going through each of these events with a short description of what happened, but then also with a short comparison of the Israelites' sins to our sins today. We often think that if we were the Israelites and, you know, God was like literally, you know, bringing us through, uh, you know, water and all those sorts of things, that we would not have sinned as they did. But my hope in going through these stories one by one is to show that we are actually not so different than these Israelites. Now, verse 6 can be considered a summary of the verses that are to follow in the section. It reads, Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. The psalmist is right in reminding us that we are sinful creatures. 
as Paul wrote in Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The psalmist is reminding people that the, follow, the, the people that the following descriptions are not just the sins of the Israelites in, in the past, but that they themselves had followed in their footsteps and continued to sin to this day. Verses 7 through 12 uh, is the first event that's uh, uh, noted here. Recounts the rebellion at the Red Sea as recorded in Exodus 14. They did not consider the wondrous works that the Lord had done up to this point in the narrative, having sent the ten plagues upon the Egyptians, leading to Pharaoh's release of the people. But Pharaoh had changed his mind and instead set out after the Israelites with his army. And then we read in Exodus 14, verses, uh, cha- starting with verse, uh, chapter 14, starting with verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone and we may serve, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. How often do we, when we meet trials and difficulty, revert back to desiring the way things used to be? After coming to believe in, in Christ as Lord and Savior, you may have thought life would be easy with all of your problems vanishing like a vapor. But then you begin to have that temptation for alcohol that had once consumed your life before Christ. With your friends pressuring you to go out like you used to, and fear begins to creep in. I thought this temptation was gone when I committed my life to Christ. And what if I lose my friends? If I'm still going to struggle with alcoholism, I might as well have never came to Christ in the first place. Because at least back then, the weight of guilt and shame was much less. And you begin to romanticize your former life, making light of the consequences of the sin that so easily entangles. Now, after recounting the Lord's deliverance to the Red Sea, the psalmist goes on to describe their wanton craving in the wilderness. Verses 13 through 15 are referencing Numbers 11, where we read, starting in verse 4, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now, I'm sure there are some of you here today who have chosen not to partake in eating meat, and that's fine. But if I was an Israelite, I probably would have been complaining right alongside with them. What about the Mount Mushmore burger at Jail Beers? What about my grandpa's steak? What about the Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich? I would remind you that these people were being fed by God with manna, by him literally sending down bread from heaven to feed his people. But not even that was good enough for them. They wanted more. How often does God provide for what we need Yet we whine and complain because we desire something different. God provides us a wonderful place to live with shelter over our head, yet we want something bigger, more expensive, more exotic. God provides us with a consistent and reliable vehicle, but we want to drive a classier status symbol so people think we're wealthy and and are jealous when we zip on by. God provides us with food, 
but we aren't satisfied with McDonald's and peanut butter sandwiches. We want mezzaluna and filet mignon. In so many ways, we are like the Israelites in not recognizing God's good gifts and cherishing them. We would do well to be content with what God has graciously provided us with. Verses 16 through 18 describe events recorded in Numbers 16. What happened is that Korah, Dathan, and Abiram gathered together 250 men to confront Moses and Aaron, challenging the authority that the Lord had given Moses and Aaron over the people. Now, if you know the story, you know that it does not end well. Dathan and Abiram, with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods, were swallowed up alive when the earth opened up. And the 250 men were consumed by a fire from the Lord. Furthermore, the people then grumbled against Moses and Aaron again on the next day, the next day, literally the day after, and the Lord then sent a plague that killed an additional 14,700 Israelites. Where do you, like these Israelites, question the authorities that God has placed in your life? Maybe it's your boss at work thinking that you can do a better job than they can if, if you were in their position. Maybe you have refused to pay your taxes, even though it is written, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Maybe you're still under the authority of your parents, yet you seek to undermine and dishonor them whenever the opportunity presents itself. Or maybe... You have chosen not to submit to the elders of the local church you call your home church, even though it is written, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Whatever it may be, let this be a lesson in making sure to consider these truths before taking it upon ourselves to undermine the authorities God has placed in our lives. Now, by now, most of you have heard of what the psalmist describes next in verses 19 through uh, 23 the golden calf that the people of Israel constructed while Moses was literally on the mountain speaking with God in order to worship this thing as their new God. I love, I, I love how the psalmist describes it. He says, they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. When the author of this psalm wrote this, this is probably what he was expecting the people to think about, right? <clears throat> An ox literally eating the stuff that fills the void between the plants that we humans actually eat. Now, I think this ox himself is surprised that anyone would worship him. He's got the big eyes. The psalmist was trying to point out the absurdity of what the Israelites did. Now, for those of you who may not have ever been to a farm and don't quite understand what the psalmist is getting at, here's a more modern translation. Moses has been talking to God for a long time. Better start worshiping this cow. Or if you're still not following what the psalmist is trying to say, how about this one? You can either go straight and wait for Moses to return or take the exit and build a golden, golden calf. And there's Aaron drifting around the, the exit there. Absurdity, right? We're thinking, who in their right mind would think that was a good idea? Now, you, you may laugh at the Israelites worshiping this calf, but you wouldn't be laughing anymore if someone pointed out your most absurd sins. Wait, you're saying that you neglect your wife and kids, spiritually, emotionally, and physically, in order to work 80 hours a week so that you can give them a better life? You're telling me your worth and value depends on how many people hit a little thumbs-up shaped icon on your selfie? 
Wait, you thought it would be just fine if you sought to satisfy your sexual desires browsing the internet? Now that golden calf is starting to sound fairly understandable now, isn't it? I would remind you that when properly phrased in light of the truth of Scripture, every sin, not just the ones I mentioned, not the ones I'm going to mention, every sin is absurd and abhorrent in the eyes of God. Now the psalmist continues with verses 24 through 27, describing the events recorded in Numbers 14. When Israel sent spies into the land of Canaan, they came back and reported on the great and powerful people who populated the land. We seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. In other words, they were just ginormous, they were just going to squash us. The psalmist writes, Then they despised the pleasant land, and having no faith in his promise, having no faith in his promise, they murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. When are you prone to forget the promises of God? When do you tend to murmur and groan about the circumstances you find yourself in, forgetting about the good things that God has promised for those who love him? We would do well to remember, remind ourselves daily of God's promises, strengthening our faith through a study of his word. The next event described in the psalm is that of Baal worship at Peor, recounted in Numbers 25. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. After a few more events that are described there, a man named Phineas violently intervened, stopping the plague that had already killed 24,000 Israelites. What are the idols that you are worshiping? It has been said that our hearts are idol factories seeking to bow down to whatever suits our fancy. What are you prone to worship? Money? Material possessions? Status? Maybe attention from others? Perfection? Maybe an easy and leisurely life? Addictive substances? Sexual lust? Whatever they may be, We should be like Phineas in our relentless pursuit of tearing down the idols that seek to redirect our affections away from God. Verses 32 and 33 recount the time when the people of Israel had no water and they again complained and quarreled with Moses and Aaron until God made water to flow literally from a rock. The psalmist writes, They angered him at the waters of Meribah and it went ill with Moses on their account For they made his spirit bitter, and then he spoke rashly with his lips. Now this should serve as a reminder that not only do our actions and decisions affect ourselves, but they affect others as well. Maybe you're an instigator who likes to push people's buttons until they lose control and explode in anger. Maybe you like to quarrel with others, leading to broken relationships and sinful conflict. Maybe you need to reconsider the clothing you wear, considering that it may cause a brother in Christ to stumble. Or maybe you are just a negative person who doesn't live with an eternal perspective and your mood negatively affects all those around you. I would ask for you to consider today how your words, actions, and decisions are affecting those around you. Now the next verses 
<clears throat> show the true depths of our sinfulness and the destruction and the depravity that it leads to, and they are worth reciting in full. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. We read a passage like this and we're horrified. How could these people do such horrendous evil with their kids? But I would remind you that we are doing much the same today, but in numbers far more numerous than anything the Israelites could ever imagine. Instead of sacrificing our sons and daughters to the idols of Canaan, our society is sacrificing our sons and daughters to the idols of convenience, pleasure, and a, and a desire to be free from any and all consequences. I'm just not ready to have a kid. The father of the child will not be present in the home, and my body, my choice are the excuses given today. But just as the Israelites were sacrificing their children to demons, so are we today. Different demons and for different reasons, but demons nonetheless. If the land was polluted with blood in those days with a much smaller population, how much greater has our land been polluted with blood in our day with over a million a year sacrificed to these idols? But even without this egregious evil, in what other ways are we sacrificing our children today? Maybe it's in putting in the long hours at work to pursue material riches, coming home too tired to spend time pouring into the lives of your family. Maybe you're assuming that your iPad can teach your kids who God is and the lessons they need to learn to succeed in life. Or maybe you want your kids to be what you are never able to be, going from soccer practice to baseball practice to music lessons, yelling at the coach, the refs, and the teacher all along the way. We must be careful that we do not sacrifice our kids on the altar of laziness or pride, but instead seek to nurture and grow them in the faith and in their understanding of themselves and the world. Now, before I read the last five verses in this section, I want to just stop and consider what we've discussed this far. What I have on the screen is the list of sins described here in this psalm, and it's not even all-encompassing for the sins of the time period described. The question I have for you is this. What sins are you struggling with today? What are the dumb and idiotic decisions you are making, like the man with the Zubas, when you know the consequences of your actions, but you do them anyways? Maybe there are sins here today that you just now realized are sins that you've been ignoring or you haven't recognized. Every once in a while, it is good for us to sit and feel the weight of our sin. Do you feel that weight today? Now this section of describing the iniquity and wickedness of the people of Israel ends with the following verses that describe the events of the book of Judges. <clears throat> and it's kind of depressing. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. <coughs> 
How depressing. Right? If I concluded my sermon here, ending with verse 43, you would all go home more depressed and more hopeless than before you came. And this would be a great tragedy if this were the conclusion. It makes us want to cry out for mercy. But alas, mercy does come. The psalmist graciously continues with verse 44. (coughs) Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. What good news, right? This section stands in direct contrast to the previous section we have looked at. Before we saw the unfaithfulness of God's people and our unfaithfulness, but here we see the faithfulness of God despite the people's rebellion. (coughs) The first thing that should be noted with regard to this section is that God always fulfills his promises to his people. In verse 45, God chooses to relent because he remembers his covenant with him. The covenant that is being referred to here is the same covenant referenced last week in Psalm 105, the covenant that he made with Abraham. To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. God promised Abraham that he would become a great nation and that through him all the nation, families of the earth shall be blessed. So what are we to take from this covenant in verse 45 of Psalm 106? That no matter how unfaithful God's people may be, God is still faithful in fulfilling his promises. For the people of Israel did become a great nation in the land of Canaan, despite all the sinfulness that we just discussed. Second, I want to point out that God did not relent because somehow the Israelites had figured out how to properly and faithfully serve the Lord. But according to the abundance of his steadfast love, God's steadfast love, we see a similar explanation given as to why God interceded on behalf of his people at the Red Sea. In verse 8, yet, or nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. This is something that we must never forget. God does not save his people because of their good deeds, but because of his steadfast love and for his name's sake. The final thing I would like to point out in this section before pondering what this all means for us today is verse 46. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. What difference does mercy and pity from the master make in the lives of those at their disposal? I'm certain that as the people who had just returned from exile read this, they couldn't help but think about the mercies of King Cyrus of Persia to God's servant Ezra, or King Artaxerxes to Nehemiah, or the story of Daniel rising to prominence during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, or the mercy of King Ahasuerus to Queen Esther as she sought to save her people from the hands of Haman. What mercies God has shown his people throughout all of history. (coughs) But even more does this section speak to us as we sit here today on this side of the cross. God has more to do to fulfill his covenant, God had more to do to fulfill his covenant with Abraham that through Abraham all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for the sins of all those who believe, he was both fulfilling his covenant to Abraham as well as displaying his steadfast love. In sending Christ to die in our place, only to be raised again on the third day, 
God was saving us for his name's sake. And in sending Christ to die for sinners, for you and for me, God completed the greatest act of pity, mercy, and grace that the world will ever know. You see, our God is a great and wonderful Father, rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. Paul writes of God's love, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good, good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As not one of the Egyptians was left after God's complete and divine justice at the Red Sea, so too have our sins been washed away through the blood of Jesus Christ. As God's wrath was stayed by the intervention of Moses and Phineas, so too has God's wrath been stayed by the intervention of Christ on behalf of those who believe in him. What glorious news for us sinners. Knowing these truths to be true, and reminding ourselves of God's mercy to the Israelites and God's mercy to us, we have but one response, which is to plead to our God for mercy and grace amidst our sin and rebellion. Verses 4 and 5 and verse 47 serve as a prayer, a plea to a loving God for forgiveness and mercy. Let these verses serve as your plea to the Lord as well today. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Verse 47, save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. (coughs) When we consider the weight of our sin, as we did just a few moments ago, we can do nothing but plead as the psalmist does here. Pray with me. Pray with me here in light of this text. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Save us. We confess before you, merciful Father, that we have sinned. We have not obeyed your commands. We have looked upon your creation and lusted after its pleasures. We have created idols for ourselves that have captured our hearts. We come to you in repentance today, knowing that for your name's sake, you are ready and willing to forgive us. Help us to remember that great truth that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. (coughs) Help us, Father, to remember our sinfulness of the past, what you have saved us from, that we may remember your great mercy and grace that was on display for us on the cross at Calvary. When you gather your saints from among the nations, may we be in that great and glorious company of believers. When we enter into your inheritance prepared for us from before all time, may we give you all the glory and thanks and praise that is due your great name. Help us, Father, to be glad in seeing the lost save, the sick healed, and our enemies turned into brothers and sisters in Christ. May we rejoice at the work of your hands and not forget your great deeds throughout all of history. And may we not forget your great promise to us That for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. If there are any here today, Father, who have not given their lives to you, may they do so this day for we are all in need of your grace. Help us to love and serve you and depend upon your Holy Spirit as we sojourn here on this earth. And let all the people say, Amen. Now, the first and last verse of this psalm 
form bookends that when read together amount to a wonderful doxology of praise to our merciful God, even while we have sinned and will continue to sin, which I hope is apparent to you today, right? That we, we sin, we're going to continue to sin. But the psalmist wants to remind us that even greater than the depths of our sin and far more vast than the wickedness of our hearts is God's unrelenting and steadfast love for those who believe in him. Our God today stands ready to forgive you, having washed you clean by the blood of the Holy Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. If only you might believe in him as Lord and Savior and seek to serve him as you go through this life. Now let us close with this doxology and I, I want you to read <coughs> with me the, uh, the words on the screen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we again thank you for your word today. We thank you that as a soul apparent, Lord, we continue to be sinful creatures, Lord, but you are faithful to your promise that if we believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior of our lives and commit our lives to you, Father, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We ask, Lord, that, that, would rest, that we would rest in that today, Lord, and that we would dwell upon your truth in this text today, Lord. In your Son's holy name, amen.